Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Aaron Koch-Tusman, Senior Editor. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On this week's pod, CMS hands in its final decision on Aduhelm. What did it decide and what should happen next? And what's on tap in BioCentury's distillery? We also check in on the CEDAR director's call for more funding for regulatory innovation. And Simone brings you up to speed on the takeaways from her conversation with EQRX's Jamie Rubin on the BioCentury show. This episode of BioCentury This Week is brought to you by BioEquity Europe. Join us May 16th to 18th in Milan as BioCentury's 22nd BioEquity Europe conference returns to in-person networking. Schedule one-to-one meetings with more than 130 biotechs selected to present by our own editorial team, debate strategies for navigating through the capital crunch, and the industry's talent crunch over two-plus days of strategic panels and workshops. Find your next investor, your next partner, or your next portfolio company at this exclusive C-suite event. We look forward to seeing you in Milan. Register today at bioequityeurope.com. All right, Selena, Aduhelm, you've been following it for years now. And CMS finally gave us its final decision on the national coverage determination. What changed from the draft determination? Yeah, so the most important change um, was clearly that the agency no longer paints every anti-amyloid therapy with one brush. One of the big criticisms of the proposal was that regardless of the phase three data that a therapy produces, what data is used to approve it, coverage of all of them was going to be restricted to randomized controlled trials. Now there's essentially two classes of therapies, if you will. Those that are granted accelerated approval based on movement of a biomarker, which is amyloid lowering, and those that are granted full approval based on a direct measure of clinical benefit. So those in the accelerated approval bucket, coverage of them will still be restricted to randomized controlled trials. But if a drug gets full approval because it's demonstrated benefit, it still needs additional evidence developed, um, but it can do so in broader context. So any kind of prospective comparative study will suffice. So that means a pragmatic trial conducted in routine care And CMS went out of its way to kind of repeat a few times that such trials can enroll, quote, large numbers of patients. So it's a way of saying it's not killing the market for fully approved therapies. Selena, you also had comments back from Biogen and from Lilly. Let's just start with Biogen. My take is that Biogen looks at this and says, if the next products are approved and demonstrate the link between amyloid lowering and cognitive decline, then because their product has shown amyloid lowering, that link should then be assumed to be relevant also for their product. So they're kind of trying to ride the coattails, as far as I can understand, of the upcoming products and their trials. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I mean, CMS was very clear that it doesn't think the data are there 
to establish a link between amyloid lowering and clinical benefit, even though FDA called it a reasonably likely surrogate endpoint. Um, so if those data were to come in for another drug, Biogen is saying the whole class should now be given broader approval. But again, not all anti-amyloid therapies are the same. They don't target the same species of amyloid for one thing. And we don't really understand all these different intermediate forms, what's most toxic, what's going to be most effective for patients in terms of getting rid of that particular form. And they don't all lower the, the particular biomarker that's used as a surrogate, which is the end stage of aggregation, the aggregates that you can see on PET scans. So, so what you're saying is yeah. if Lily's drug does show that connection, it's not necessarily the case that you can make that jump to Biogen's Adihome. I mean, maybe, but Lily's drug does it a lot faster and more dramatically. So there's, there's differences. I, I think it's absurd. And Biogen certainly wouldn't make the argument if the shoe was on the other foot that just because another drug in a class that seems to have the similar mechanism of action, the same mechanism of action works, that that automatically means that Biogen's drug works. That's kind of an absurd claim. And I don't think that FDA or anybody else is going to buy that. Selena, one more thing. Lily says that they shouldn't have accelerated, but should get full approval, right? Well, Lily is going to go ahead and apply for accelerated approval this year. That has been its plan. But it's going to have clinical endpoint data mid-year next year. So they're hoping to follow it up with full approval very quickly. And their argument in the statement they sent to us, it didn't say anything about accelerated approval. It said, for those drugs that receive full approval, there's no reason they should be required to develop any more evidence. They should just have broad approval. So CMS anticipated that argument and discussed its rationale and its decision memo and basically said, the problem is that the phase three trials are highly refined patient populations, right? Whereas the Medicare population, the people who have Alzheimer's in that population have way more comorbidities. Many of them are older, so on and so forth. So when you have a result that's maybe at the borderline of just noticeable, maybe clinically meaningful, maybe not, having some more evidence in that broader population is, they think, warranted. So that brings up some things. I've been writing a commentary, hopefully I'll have it um, written by the end of the day, about stepping back and saying, what can we learn from the Adjuhelm experience? And, and to me, there are kind of four problems that it exposes. One is FDA's idiosyncratic decision-making, its lack of transparency about approval standards, and I think also tolerance of back-channel communications between regulators and product developers that erode public confidence in its actions. Another is uh, biopharma companies betting that urgent medical need will lead FDA to overlook an absence of compelling data and force payers to swallow unjustified prices. A third is patient groups that fail to ensure both the reality and the appearance of independence from drug companies that fund their advocacy. And the fourth is um, an inflexible coverage and payment system that's incapable of making nuanced decisions linking reimbursement to value and the inability of the healthcare system to generate accurate outcomes data that could inform clinical decisions, product development, and payment. That's a, a lot of things to think about. I think that what should happen going forward is for the whole biopharma ecosystem to focus on coming up with solutions for those kinds of problems. I think FDA needs to develop a transparent process to determine approvable endpoints and achieve scientific consensus about them prior to approving particular products. There are reforms that are needed to Medicare to make it possible for manufacturers 
to share the uncertainty associated with accelerated approvals. That would mean being able to launch at a low price when there's a lot of uncertainty and then increase the price when that certainty has been reduced. And I think there's a need for everybody involved in healthcare to create systems that can generate evidence about outcomes quickly, cheaply, and reliably. Steve, you know, we obviously wrote about some of these things in last year's Back to School. Let's take the payment thing for a moment, which is the idea that you would pay less for something with less evidence and accelerated approval, and then I suppose pay more when the data come in. To substantiate it, I know that one of the arguments against that is that never happens. Prices never go up. They only ever go down. What do you think about that? Well, I think historically that isn't true. Prices in the United States have consistently gone up for a lot of things. And that's why Congress has put a lot of effort into trying to cap price increases to inflation levels. But I think that more fundamentally, there is a, there's a need in, in Medicare especially to create more flexibility so that pricing can be tied to value and so that it can dial up or down uh, when our understanding of what the value of a drug changes. And probably to have differential pricing for different indications for the same drug also. There's some drugs that we know that they're really effective in a particular indication, and there's a suspicion that they may be effective in other indications. The data really isn't there, but maybe there aren't other alternatives. And those kind of circumstances, the payment, I think, should be less, and um, that would create obvious incentives for for the companies to generate the data to substantiate the value. All right. Thanks, Steve. Look forward to reading your commentary. And of course, uh, if you missed it, Selena's story from Thursday is up on our website. She lays out what happened in the decision, as well as the next three programs that are in the pipeline that we'll be waiting for data from. All right, let's turn now to Karen and the distillery. Karen, what's on tap in BioCentury's distillery this month? Well, it's been an exciting time for the distillery because, um, as I know you've mentioned before, we launched our distillery dashboard, which basically takes all these articles that we've written across all these years, puts them in one easily searchable database, and really highlights the investigators uh, of who's doing what, so you can build your networks and find people doing research in your areas of interest. And then, of course, we've got the latest update from the last batch of papers. One that stood out to me was in a very underserved area of fertility and low ovarian reserve in particular. And so it was interesting to see a paper from a group at Tsinghua University about a Trek B agonist. Uh, it was a MAB. It could cross into the ovaries of mice, and it could increase the number of mature functional follicles and live births, both for mice that were just older and also for those with chemotherapy-induced ovarian damage. And that was actually licensed to 4B Technologies Suju Company Limited, but they indicated that it's available for licensing and partnering beyond that. So Karen, there is a ton of activity, according to BCIQ, in the TrekB space. Does that mean that it's going to be impossible for somebody to carve a different path here? What are, you, what are you looking at at the competitive landscape for something like that? Well, in this case, sometimes the distills we highlight really point to new biology, and sometimes they point to a specific compound. And here, I think it's doing both. 
it seems like it's going to be important for whatever trachbiagonist compound to be able to cross into ovarian tissues, for example. That was something they demonstrated. But um, certainly it would be interesting to see if others with compounds uh, against this target started to explore this area. Yeah, I think mostly they've not been in fertility, trachbiagonist. So it's a BDNF receptor, right? So it's a highly used in neuroscience area. Of course, trick receptors and cancer are a thing, but I don't know so much about for their use in fertility. Well, and then uh, the other piece of evidence that this paper had was showing that BDNF levels were lower in older women. So we're always looking for that patient human data as well to kind of substantiate the conclusions. And then another paper that I thought was pretty interesting was out of Stanford and SRI. They developed a small molecule that restores lysosomal function in neurodegeneration, and they looked at frontotemporal dementia and uh, Parkinson's models. They were looking, screening for compounds that induced uh, SMAD signaling, which their group had previously shown to be neuroprotective. And then they found a candidate that when they worked backwards, it looked like it acts by targeting the lysosomal VATPase. And so they saw that the compound prevented loss of dopaminergic neurons, um, decreased accumulation of pathogenic alpha-synuclein uh, in mice, uh, a mouse model of PD, and it improved motor function as well. So this was another case where the IP has been patented and uh, spun out to a small company, Kinoto, with a Q, but they also indicated that it's available for licensing and partnering opportunities. So Karen, is this a completely new target in Parkinson's? I know that the last however many years, and Selena obviously can probably list every single target, but there's been a lot more emphasis on things like, I don't know, lysosomal or intracellular targets, different kinds of pathways. Is this the first time somebody's really been demonstrating this link, or at least in our records? Well, it's an interesting case because they, they had a phenotypic screen for one pathway, and then their hit ended up leading them to um, sort of this lysosomal approach. I think it's very cool that a phenotypic approach worked itself back to the lysosome. It's just yet another indication of the importance of the lysosome in these diseases. It's an emerging area of interest. The human genetics of Parkinson's, for example, is pointing to the lysosome as being an important player, whereas historically you might have thought of the mitochondria more. It's just like yet another line of evidence. And there's a compound. And it's another plug for phenotypic screening for the phenotypic screening cohort out there. So, you know, if this one pans out, very cool. And Karen, I know you always like to uh, tease what's in our, what we call TIBIs, uh, the translation in brief that we publish a couple times a week. What, what are some of the highlights from uh, recent issues, Karen? So in the translation in brief, that's where we cover platform technologies that maybe aren't a therapeutic itself, but could inform or uh, assist drug development. And also that's where we cover data from companies, preclinical data from companies that have established programs. But one of the things that I found interesting there was a paper from Somalogic in Science Translational Medicine, where they looked at samples from 22,000 participants across nine clinical studies, and then they validated it in another 11,000 patient cohort. And basically what they were trying to do is find a protein signature that could be a surrogate endpoint for cardiovascular risk. And for those who have read our coverage in this area, including our back to school issue last year, this is an area where predicting cardiovascular risk is something, if you were able to do it properly, 
would shave a lot of time and resources off of uh, what's needed to do trials for cardiovascular disease drugs and, and diabetes drugs, where you have to look for cardiovascular outcomes. And so here they reduced it down using machine learning models to a 27 protein signature that spanned a number of pathways, which they think will make it applicable to multiple diseases. And uh, just a plug for, you know, one of the things we looked at in back to school was how omics technologies could help bring forward new biomarkers that could be surrogate endpoints, but how you need really large N to do that. And this study seems to be heading in that direction. All right. Thanks for that, Karen. Let's turn to Washington. Steve, last week, FDA's Patrizia Cavazzoni issued a call for new funding to support regulatory innovation. What is the CEDAR director asking for specifically? So Dr. Cavazzoni talked about the center's funding needs and priorities in a webinar that was hosted by the Alliance for a Stronger FDA. That's an advocacy group that promotes FDA funding. And what I found was really interesting were her comments about rare diseases. She said basically that user fees are enough to ensure that FDA meets its PDUFA goals for orphan drugs, but more taxpayer money is going to be needed to innovate. She wants to hire staff who can think about new ways to assess the safety and efficacy of drugs for rare conditions and to tap into the expertise in the rare disease community to do that. People don't often associate FDA with innovation. That's just a fact. Well, what kind of innovation would she be talking about here? She didn't specify, but the way I would think about it is, is that FDA has demonstrated and has exercised flexibility in the standards that it's applied for approving drugs for rare diseases, but it hasn't done it consistently. Some of the kind of intellectual horsepower that it needs is to go back and look at what it's done to figure out what it's done right what it hasn't done right, and to come up with ways to prospectively describe its flexibilities so product developers know what's appropriate and what isn't appropriate, and then to apply them in a consistent way going forward. That's one example. I think other examples, obvious, the you know 800-pound gorilla in the room with orphan drug approvals is almost always surrogate endpoints. So coming up with better ways to develop consensus around surrogate endpoints and communicate that to the rare disease community and to product developers in advance is something else that would be innovative. Um, linking approvals to new ways to develop post-market evidence. Also figuring out ways to apply adjacencies. So to look at things that rare diseases that are similar to other rare diseases and figuring out if there are ways to use the evidence from similar rare diseases to approve drugs that would be another example. Well, you've certainly given them a, a great list of things to do there, Steve. And I know that definitely drug developers are looking for consistency so that they can plan their programs. All right. Well, and with a new FDA commissioner in place now, um, something to watch. And Steve, he, he is on the beat as he has been for uh, more than two decades now. Simone, you sat down with Jamie Rubin of EQRX. She's also a longtime Wall Street analyst for the latest edition of the BioCentury show. What were the key takeaways? So two focuses of the discussion. One I'll be very brief on, which is about their PD-1 inhibitor program, which I know there's a lot of eyes on because they have China data. 
EQRX is still quite gung-ho about this. You know, they're very aware that they still have a lot to meet with FDA, and they they were very non-committal about the U.S. timeline for this program. They say they'll do global trials. They do believe that they can check FDA's boxes, but specifically, they said that they will be hoping to file in Europe and the UK in the second half of this year, and actually that they expect the U.S. to be about a third of the market for the drug rather than what's normally the case, which is 80%. We'll keep watching that PD-1 program, all that's sort of always a, a very hot topic. But I thought she had two very, very interesting points regarding M&A. As I said, drawing on her experience at Goldman Sachs, first of all, she said biotech investors are going to be disappointed if they think that pharma M&A is going to bail them out. She does not expect a ton of pharma M&A. And what she says is that the big pharma companies, their problem is that they've got a patent cliff in a few years that they need to fill. And frankly, there are not enough products that will create the revenue stream that they're looking for. So there might be a few out there. You might see some pickings. But on the whole, she doesn't expect to see a big wave. What she does think we should keep an eye out for instead is big to big consolidation. She thinks it's more likely that they are going to go and consolidate with bigger companies that already have established revenue streams. The second thing I thought was very interesting that she said was that this concept she brought up about innovation obsolescence. And she said that innovation is racing so fast that the big farmers can't necessarily keep up in terms of understanding which picks to make. She said there's sort of a concern that you buy one technology and then two years later it's out of date because something else has come along that that upstages it. It's really better for those companies to partner with smaller companies rather than to buy them at this point. And so I thought that was a an interesting insight and she expects to see them sort of skew to partnerships over M&A. But I encourage you to listen to it because it is really a lesson in how the big companies think and, you know, what their considerations are. Yeah, definitely, Simone. And last week, we we obviously saw Novartis reorganize a little bit and, and say they are really going to focus on compounds that move the needle. We'll see what happens next among the big pharma here and whether M&A will take a hit, something for our smaller biotech friends to keep an eye on. We do have our financial markets preview up on our website. And on Wednesday, Simone and I will be joined by our financial analyst, Stephen Hansen, about what he expects in the months ahead in the markets after talking to many on the buy side and in the banks. And of course, we have much, much more online. Our ongoing AACR coverage includes new targets at AACR. Companies are presenting at least 44 targets not yet addressed by disclosed clinical or preclinical programs at the conference, which wraps up this week. Uh, We'll also have a piece from our Lauren Martz today on what the latest KRAS data from Amgen mean for the company's program, as well as other compounds against KRAS, such as the next-in-line therapy from Marathi. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and Apple. And Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. 